Okay, welcome to the New Street X podcast today. I'm very excited to have a special guest, Neeraj Shaw. Now, Neeraj is the co-founder at Method90, which is a company that helps sports organizations create powerful new revenue streams and completely new fan engagement opportunities through Web3 and blockchain-based innovation. So he's really at the cross-section of sports and blockchain and Web3, doing a lot of exciting things. We're happy to have him here today. So Neeraj, welcome. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, Tony, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I really love what you're doing. And as we've talked about before, you know, I've got a personal interest in sports, entertainment, and blockchain, of course. Now, how did you get into this space? Maybe we could take a step back. Maybe just introduce yourself and talk about your background before getting into Method 90. That's a good question and a good place to start. So before getting into Method 90, I basically I, I had a career for about 10 years and then I started my first business just over 10 years ago and this is my fourth business. And the three previous, they've all been tech or tech-enabled type of businesses. And, and the whole time I've been really involved in technology, whether it's founding technology companies or investing in stuff or, or that kind of thing. So I think I think I'll dial it back slightly and I think there's a really good way, because I've been trying to reconcile, how did I end up doing this? And there's probably three really interesting threads. That The first is, of course, sports. You know, I've been into sports my whole life. My f- favorite sport is uh, football or soccer for our American cousins. And, you know, watch the games on TV. I've, I've been to a lot of games in, in stadium as well. And I've had a minor addiction to a couple of football video games as well. But over the years, I've become interested in lots of different sports. So, you know, I'm here in London with you. And when the NBA comes to London, I try and get a ticket to that. It, uh, and, you know, that kind of thing. So when, when the ATP finals are here, I try and get a ticket to that. So the, f- the first is sports. And, and I really thought the chance to work in this industry had passed me by. So that was kind of cool that, that it came up and I had to grab it. The second thread is technology. Been around technology my whole life. I was in my mid to late teens in the Web 1 boom in the late 90s. So I felt I was too young to participate in that. And then just, just didn't know that I could, you know, what wasn't really too common for teenagers to be starting businesses. So I interned at a dot com and I had a little bit of money left over from my university studies and invested that in tech stocks, watched it go up and then watched it crash. But ever since then, been super invested in investing technology. You know, I, I'm not a engineer or a coder, but I can read code if you put a gun to my head. Um, so that's the second thread. And then as I mentioned, that a bunch of uh, like everything I've done since has either been a tech company or it's been enabled by tech, like the competitive and ad- at competitive advantage has come from our utilization of tech in a way that our competitors don't. And and then the third one, I think it's related to all of this. When I really understood what was going on with Web3 and blockchain, which was just over a year ago, because I'd come out of my last business and I wanted to take a bit, bit, you know, a couple of weeks off just to read about things I was interested in. And I knew about Bitcoin and knew about blockchain because a few years prior, I'd co-founded a peer-to-peer finance company in in the real estate world, which which is that company's still doing pretty well. I kept my founder equity, so I'm really happy about that. But that was when we first came across these concepts around decentralization and participation and whatever. But I'd never taken the time to really get under the skin of it and understand it. And I don't invest in things that I don't understand. So I take I blocked a couple of days out just to read about Bitcoin and blockchain and whatever. And I really thought one of two things was going to happen. The first was 
I was going to think, okay, this is really interesting. I'm going to put some money in like Bitcoin, ETH, whatever, you know, whatever's interesting, and then I'll move on to my next business. Or I'm going to conclude, mm, yeah, th this stuff is, uh, you know, it's a fad and it's not going to hit and it's not going to last. So I'm not going to put any money in it and I'm going to walk away. And then what happened, and I think you would know what, what's coming next, like half a day into this process of reading about this stuff, the light bulb went off and th then the decision became really simple, which was whatever business I'm doing next, it's going to be in this space. And so that that's the you know first thread is sports, second is tech in general. The third is, I think we are going through an opportunity to participate in something revolutionary that's going to define the next era of the web. I didn't participate in web one. I missed web two. I'm not getting any younger, so I want to participate in this one. And that's that's pretty. And then, then from there, it was just got my hands dirty in lots of different projects. Um, was really early to metaverse stuff. Really, uh, not, not really early to NFT stuff, but still early compared to most. And then a friend of a friend who has serious credibility in the sports technology place, a guy called Mac Lackey. He's now my business partner. He has built and exited six different businesses, three of them in sports tech. His sole business is the Sky NBC. He is Barcelona's for, former biggest partner in the US, current partner of Juventus. Uh, that I could not think there could be more credibility in the sports tech place. And he got wind that I was into all this blockchain type stuff and said, I've got this idea. Would you have a look at it? And I looked at the idea and it became an absolute no-brainer to just build it together. And that's, that's where we're at. Well, before we get into the specifics of Method 90, because I like I liked that that cliffhanger we ended on right there before going on to the, the next step. But when you talked about getting into Web3, I mean, you're describing the sort of feeling that, you know, for us, it's kind of obvious, but not everybody listening to this would, would, would get it. The fact that when some people just start to understand the implications of what this really means for the future of business, technology, society, it's hard to not feel like you must participate in Web3 somehow, right? And for some people, it's through a different avenues. Like I got into blockchain many years ago, but I think it was really NFTs and its application to like arts and creativity that really got me excited. And like, I'd love to know when it comes to the specifics of blockchain, was there a certain Web3 slash blockchain, certain angle that was most interesting to you? Like, you know, some people are into like, crypto investments. Some people are into NFTs and photography because they're artists. Some people are into building blockchain protocols because they're super intense engineers. Just out of curiosity, was there like a, a company or a use case or like a story that particularly stuck in your head as why you're interested? Yeah, it's such a good question. So it started off, as I said, of I have to be involved in this space. And then just through the fact that you know, it's not my not the first time I've built a company and I've advised a few and invested in a few and you know, had that breadth of experience. I knew the best way to figure out what I want to do in this space was to get my hands very dirty very quickly. And the, the beauty of Web3 is that you just need an internet connection and, and a little bit of time and you can do that. And I think it's really democratized that access. So that was the, one of the first big unlocks in, in terms of that being democratized. It started off as a very broad approach, and um, I started reading about DAOs. I, I, basically, I bought some Bitcoin, I bought some ETH, and then I started looking at what else is interesting in, in this space. Came across a concept of DAOs and started researching DAOs and came across one called, which is Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is a new way of organizing things that blockchain enables. I came across one called the Index Coop, and the Index Coop are really, really interesting because they build index products for crypto. So 
What that means in the simplest terms is that the, the same way you could buy the index of the S&P or the, or the NASDAQ or whatever, it means you're not getting exposure to any one company, but to the whole index. And they were building this and, and still are very successfully building this for crypto. So they had something have something called the DeFi Pulse Index. And that's just a bunch of different DeFi tokens. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting because I get DeFi. I think it's exciting. I know it's not personally exciting to me. I don't want to build a DeFi company, but I do want to get exposure to this idea that I believe in. So I bought their index and uh, we can get into the nuance of it because it's all super Web3 enabled and it's really, really impressive. But they, I, I started doing stuff for them and started getting paid in crypto, which was super cool. But they had this little product called the Metaverse Index. So we're going back a year ago now. And the Metaverse Index was a, a collection of tokens that they'd, like like any, any traditional fund manager would, they vet the different companies. So they had a collection of tokens that they'd vetted. And they were entertainment, virtual land, gaming, and music, all the themes. Um, so I knew directionally this is really exciting for me versus DeFi. So I was like, okay, I want to build in that space. So I started helping them to assess their the tokenomics of projects that they were looking at, which um, again, for anyone listening, tokenomics, it just means the token economics. It's a way to assess the business model of a Web3 company if they're going down at that sort of tokenization type route. And through doing that, I got to know a lot of these protocols. And that was, you know, that was when I came across NFTs and I'd already bought my first NFT because I just thought it was like something I, I, you have to, for me, you have to do something to really understand it in Web3. The understanding is in a doing, it's too abstract otherwise. So I'd bought an NFT. I started looking at all this metaverse stuff. I, I invested in that index as well um, about a year ago. That that That's paid off very well, obviously. And then I started getting into NFTs and then I just went into full NFT degen mode because I got, I, I thought this is really interesting and I'm already a very experienced investor across a couple of different asset classes over a couple of decades now. And um, so I was applying all of that knowledge to this new asset class and actually got involved in so many different projects because for me, it was a question of, A, a these are, they're like seed investments. They're not all going to succeed. In fact, most of them are going to fail, but I want exposure to specific themes. And secondly, by getting involved, I can see what they're doing and learn and figure things out. So in the last three or four months, because we've had a couple of mini NFT booms, I've been selling stuff. I've got it down to 32 projects now that I'm in and something like 140 NFTs. So it like it's just about, I mean, I can't keep up with all the discords. There's no way. But also I'm a fundamental investor, so I'm not trying to trade these things short term. I did a little bit of that because it is useful to learn, but I'm more interested in where these projects are going long term. So that's pretty much the rest of the story. And then at the same time, I was looking at a lot of real world stuff. But I think what really got me about what we're building now is that we're really all about real world utility rather than something abstract and digital. And that that to me is exciting because I'll make a bold prediction and we, we can look back on this in five or 10 years time and we can say either I got it right or, or, or I got it very, very wrong. And it could be either of those. But I really believe that the majority of the NFT market five or 10 years from now is going to be about what those NFTs enable somebody to do in the physical world or the digital world. I think the digital art piece is super interesting but just like physical art, it's going to be a niche market compared to everything else. I love that. And I feel like 
I want to put like a table, some of those topics for later when we talk about like getting deep into NFTs. But I like what you were saying about one big distinction being real world application utility, because as we, as we all know, there's too many NFTs that are kind of bullshit and kind of not providing any sort of real utility. But I guess that's a good way to kind of transition into asking about, you met up with this co-founder of yours, uh, a co-founder of yours with deep experience in sports tech. You started building Method90 and DSO, and that's not just some flimsy NFT, but it's something related to how you tie physical assets in the sports sphere to the blockchain, to blockchain Web3. I mean, I'd love to have you explain that, Like, but it sounds like you started to take a realization of what's most useful in terms of creating things in the Web3 space and what problems you're actually solving. So maybe you could, you could explain what you're doing now when it comes to Method90 and DSO. Yeah, absolutely. So with Method90, you said at the top of the conversation that from a sports club point of view, we're helping them solve three fundamental problems. Two of them we talk about openly. The third one, we don't mention it, but it's kind of baked into it. And for the sports organizations, it's basically new revenue stream, which I'm not sure there's a sports organization on the planet that isn't interested in that, especially after COVID. Increasing their ability to engage fans, which sounds very, very corporate. What it really means is we're helping them with the transition from older fans to newer fans and from local fans to global fans, because that's a transition that every sports club on the planet is either thinking about or should be thinking about. And then the third one is about future-proofing, and, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But what we're really doing this for is the fans, because that's us. So for us, it's about we're so personally excited for this to come into fruition, that we're building it for the the sports fans like us and and everybody else that's kind of interested in this. So with DSO, it stands for Digital Seat Owner or Digital Seat Ownership. And what we're doing is we are linking a digital asset, a a digital seat with a real seat in a real stadium on one-to-one. So it is an NFT, but I almost don't want to say it's an NFT because then it feels like it gets lumped in with every other NFT. Internally, the way we talk about it, like nobody cares what programming language we use. Nobody cares what database we use. And nobody should care that this is NFT or blockchain. What people care about is what it lets them do. So in its simplest terms, it's a blockchain-based season ticket or a blockchain-based seat license. But what that opens up is is unbelievable because it's really pulling together all these things that have been happening for a while, the digitization of tickets, the fact that there's online opportunities that clubs mostly aren't really exploiting much. And by linking it into a seat in a stadium, one, it gives rights and opportunities in that seat, including tickets and first access and all of those kind of things. So, you know, it's it's everything short of you can't go and physically take that seat out um, but you, you, the same way as a season ticket holder, you wouldn't be able to do that, but you get all the other benefits that a season ticket holder would. But on top of that, it creates this member's vault where we can drop other things like digital collectibles, like coupons and vouchers, online opportunities. You know, we can do some really interesting intimate stuff like could could be a meet and greet with the players or, or a club legend or something like that, or or an access to private training. And we can replicate all those things in the real world as well. But I think what we're decoupling is that you or I or any other fan now needs to be local to that stadium for it to make sense for you to participate with that club. So number one, that. And number two, it's the, the fact that we're bringing global liquidity to something that traditionally has been very illiquid because until now you can't really go and sell your 
season ticket or something like that. I mean, I mean it happens. We, we, we know that. The clubs are very aware. They want to address that. So what they want to do is make everything transparent. But now we, we can trade the, these things the way we would anything else. And the point of that means that we have more flexibility about what we do with our digital seats than we would have with a season ticket affiliated to one club, if that makes sense. I think this is actually, it's incredibly fascinating because like you were saying earlier, particularly in the world that we live in now, fan bases go far beyond the local city or arena that the teams are in. You know, like if I'm a fan of Arsenal, like 90% of Arsenal's fans in the world don't live in London, right? So there hasn't really been a way to provide value in a tangible sense for fans that might be in China or in Nigeria or whatever. So what I'm hearing is that, let's say, right now, all the Arsenal season ticket holders of physical tickets probably live nearby. But what you're providing is a solution where if I'm a huge Arsenal fan, I live in Nigeria, I live in India or whatever, I actually can get tangible value by buying a digital it's like season ticket, digital seat ownership that might be also something I could use when I fly to London, visit London, but doesn't necessarily require me to only find value if I live in London. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, you, you've pretty much got it because it's exactly that. Because at the moment, if a fan is non-local, at best, if they're a super fan, they might come from a different country or even a different city a couple of times a year. At best, like if, if you're an Arsenal fan, but you live in Manchester or Glasgow or somewhere like that, if you're a super fan, you'll come to five or 10 games a year. That's just the, the economic reality of the fact that it's not cheap with all the travel, all the rest of it. So the only other way that a club can, you know, sort of really create revenue on that is maybe you buy something from the store when you come, or maybe you buy something from the e-commerce store. So, so from the clubs, it's very compelling because what we're talking about here is how you transition from, from that kind of relationship to basically creating new revenue that doesn't affect your in-stadium revenue. That's all super boring club talk. What makes it exciting for us is it's a better deal for everyone. And that, that, that's what something about, you know, Web3 and participation and ownership. It's not just about how can we enrich these rich clubs. It's much, much, much more about how does a fan in Nigeria now get to participate with Arsenal in a way that's more meaningful than watching the games on TV and following them on social media. So if you, like, the, the use cases for this get really, really interesting because I think it's compelling for clubs that fill their stadium, Arsenal fill their stadium every game. So for them, we can just decouple the season ticket aspect because they've got a supply-demand imbalance. What I mean by that is they've got um, a supply of, I think Arsenal is about 70,000 seats. So that's their max supply, but they've got a demand on that that of several hundred thousand if there was a way to participate, possibly millions. So that's the imbalance. What we're doing is making it meaningful for our friends in Nigeria or Hong Kong or the US to support Arsenal or any other team to now say, I can take a digital seat. And in that instance, I may not get in-stadium rights, but I get this, all these other things that make me much more of a fan. And the moment I'm no longer interested in this, I can just stick it back on a marketplace and sell it to someone who is at whatever it's trading for. And of course, 
the value of these is going to move with the supply and demand of them as well. So there's that. And then so that's, that's one use case. And then the other use case, which I'm equally excited about, you've got all these underdog clubs like lower tier clubs that you know don't always fill their stadium, but they're interesting in lots of ways. It might might just um, have an amazing fan experience. Like there's a, there's a club in Germany that's known, it's in the second tier, but it's known as the party club because... because um, Sao Paulo, FC Sao Paulo. St. Pauli, yeah, exactly. FC St. Pauli, I think FC Paris are really interesting. And you've got lots of clubs like that and, and a whole bunch that nobody's ever ever heard of unless you're an absolute fanatic of, of the sport. But I think it becomes really interesting when you start turning a global audience onto these clubs and saying, here's a chance to be part of something. You can have in-stadium rights if you ever go and visit or you can just, you know, start start getting exposed to this and having that sense of ownership and to the clubs equally it's saying we can turn millions of eyeballs your way but it's not just eyeballs they're also going to participate with their attention and, and their money so again I, I keep harking back to this but it just ends up being a better deal for everyone no th- this is wonderful and like i'd love to know i mean where what stage is your company at right now like what are the plans for the future because i'm also thinking to myself it seems like there's so many possibilities, but where do you begin, right? Do you focus on a sport, a geography, you know, like just curious to know yeah. what, what you can share about that. <laughs> yeah, that's something we've had to think about quite a lot because it's it's a big vision that we're going after. And, you know, I won't even get into it too much, but this is not just applicable to every sport on the planet. It's also applicable to every venue on the planet. So we're talking I was about thinking the same thing too. Yeah. yeah, that could go. And, and, yeah. and, and I'm... I'm convinced it's going to go this way, the same way that in the late 90s, people didn't believe that every company would have a website and people put their credit card into into the internet and all that kind of thing. So what stage we're at and where we start. So our passion is European football. And I think that's, you know, that that's where we, as a set of founders, had a interest and inroads and ability and whatever. But then as soon as we started on this and started, um, you know, assembling our team and getting a couple of advisors, something really weird, unexpected happened. We started having teams approaching us and which it's unexpected because we're still very under the radar. Like if you go to our Twitter today, there's like probably 34 followers or something like that. We haven't done anything on that side of things, but just through contacts in the sports world, a few teams from other sports started approaching us. So I think we're going to be multi-sport faster than we'd planned to be. Um, in terms of stage of company, the most important thing, I, I, you know, I keep talking about the fact we're building this for sports fans. We're not building this for NFT DGENs. So for me or you, we, we've done the hard yards so that we know how to trade NFTs on OpenSea or, or on a Solana marketplace or whatever. But that process is so clunky and fraught with danger in terms of, you know, you have to go to an exchange and buy some ETH, like convert your fiat to ETH. Then you need to send that ETH, set, set up a mobile wallet or a hot wallet, and then you need to send that ETH over there. Then you need to connect it to the marketplace and then you need to do this. And then there's, you know, there's so many, like the scams are getting more sophisticated, blah, blah, blah. We're building this for sports fans. So we take that analogy of sticking your credit card into the internet and that's what we've been building. So we've been building a system where regular fans can just sign up to our system, pay with their credit card in fiat currency, no crazy gas fees, none of that stuff. But 
everything is visible and verifiable on a public blockchain. So we've just got to the point where we're pretty much at MVP now. We're just going through final testing. So what we've got upcoming in March is our Genesis drop. And what that is, is a set of DSOs that are not associated to any one club, but they're like the like top level membership to our whole ecosystem, like the Amex Black or the Centurion card. And what, what, what I mean by that is we're building a set of privileges and opportunities that aren't associated to any one club. But what it means is if somebody comes in on that Genesis drop, then um, it's going to be 999 NFTs. So it's super limited. You know, we, we didn't want to do a, do a big run of these. But if someone gets it, they'll get early access to the team, team DSOs when they drop, which we're expecting to be, you know, sort of later on this year. We're in, we're in conversation with quite a few different clubs and planning and, uh, you know, we're pr- pretty close now to get, get getting a couple of them over the line. Um, so early access to that, but also things like um, monthly prize draws that involve things things like tickets and digital collectibles and things like that. And, and then we've created this vault of signed memorabilia. So if somebody wants like that, you know, if they want that jersey signed by that player, then they can send in their Genesis token and get that I personally would not do that, but somebody might want to do that because some of this stuff's going to be pretty cool. Um, and, and then, you know, as, as time goes on, we'll just keep on building more and more stuff like that. We'll probably do, do a merch drop and th- things like that. But the real benefit of that, it's more about if somebody wants to come and support us really early and get a lot of benefit from that, then they can come in on this. And if they do, and if we, you know, if we do well as a company, then then the utility and privilege within that token will we'll build and build and build. So, you know, a few years down the road, when we build a metaverse stadium and we, we do all of that stuff, they'll get a seat in it, that kind of thing. That This is so exciting. And as you know, it's kind of very much related to my interest. So I, I look forward to seeing what you guys end up doing and sooner rather than later, hopefully participating in part of that too. Uh, I'd love to maybe take a step back and just understand better like maybe where some of your passions for this comes from. I know you mentioned you're a big sports fan, but you know, here at Newstreet, we obviously care a lot about people's like personal journeys as as collectors perhaps or their interest in things like like sneakers, NFTs, art, sports, fashion. Just curious like, you know, do, what, what is your what's your favorite team and like how did you grow up thinking about what sports meant to you? And it sounds like like you're mentioning earlier, it it is a dream for a sports fan to someday actually be able to to work on something that brings them closer to the the sport as opposed to just being a, a passive viewer on t on TV, you know? It's a good good question. So my personal favorite team is Liverpool FC, but I grew up in the 80s and the 90s and I did not live in Liverpool. So I'm the kid of an immigrant. So we didn't know about the thing in, in the UK. It used to be that wherever you live, that's the team you support. So it used to be in the 60s, 70s, 80s. If you moved city because of your job, you'd become a fan of that, that team in that city. But I'm I feel like I got come into it in the 80s when televisation was just starting to be a thing. And so now you could actually see these teams when when you weren't in that city. And I grew up in the late 80s and they were the best team and all my friends supported them. So I supported them. That sounded like a really good move in 1989. By 1992, maybe not so because then they went 30 years without winning the league and all the rest. But then I went and studied in Manchester. So I used to get the train to Liverpool and go to games. So that that was when I, I could go to like, you know, 
five, 10 games a year and really got into it. Then I moved to London after my studies and I barely make it up there anymore. When they play their away games in in and around London, I try and go to those games. But now, you know, I'm in a different stage of life and it's like a three to four hour, four hour journey up there and all the rest of it. So in many ways, it kind of, it mirrors the evolution of how these sports have gone. But then the other side of it is, if there's a really interesting Champions League game going on, or if there's like two big teams playing, I'll probably watch that game anyway. When the NBA gets to the playoffs, I'm not interested in a regular season, but when it gets to the playoffs, I'll start paying attention. When tennis gets to the Grand Slam finals, then I'm really interested. If I've got a chance to go to something like that, I'm really interested. And I really feel like, you know, in, in, in a way, it's a little bit like that's tinged with a little bit of sadness, I suppose, because that kind of loyalty is gone. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, I, I I was almost hesitant to tell you that my favorite team is Liverpool FC because I don't feel like I'm part of it. Like, like I've, I feel like I'm like this uh, distant supporter that may, maybe doesn't even have the right to be a supporter of that team. But then, you know, I'm not alone in that. There's millions of us like that. Yeah. And, and I was going to say like this to me also describes the sort of evolution of fandom, right? It's like part of that's based on geography. Like if you, if it was this, 1975, then you'd pick your team based on where you're from, and there would be this sort of like lifelong loyalty. But the world's much more globalized, much more complicated. Like, for example, you know, if I'm from Birmingham or from Liverpool, and I really like the NBA, and I've never been to America, I don't have any ties to America, how do I pick what team I want, right? Like, I'm not from Chicago. I've never, I don't know anyone in Chicago, but I might like the Bulls. Same with someone from Shanghai. Maybe someone from Shanghai, born and raised in China, never lived outside of the country, zero relatives in England. But this person, let's say she loves the Premier League. Maybe she just decides to pick I don't know, Crystal Palace because she likes them, you know? And and that sort of decision-making is just a facet of modern society. That's, that's exactly what's happening because we, we've got this beautiful slide in our deck, which I'll try and paraphrase, but it talks about the evolution of sports and fandom. And it used to be local because the only way you could engage was to go to the stadium. Then broadcasting and TV came in, which, uh, you know, was broadly in, in the 90s where it became really big. And now I can see the balls, but I don't have to be there. And, and may, maybe I can't see every game, but now I'm getting a bit more exposure, even though I'm nothing to do with Chicago or whatever. So we went from, you know, broadcast went to internet. And now I, I can read about the teams instantaneously. Um, you know, like the, the match report is filed straight after the highlights are up, whatever. So that was the thing. And then, so, so, so it's almost like pre-internet, web one, now we've got information. Web two, now it's social and mobile. Now I can talk to other fans, fan forums, all that kind of stuff. And web three is all about participation, ownership, and decentralization. I think decentralization is a lesser component of what we're what we are doing personally now, but there's an element of decentralization in in the way that the I guess the opportunities are shared, shared around because now you can be anywhere in the world. I think that point of the the fact that it can be anywhere in the world that in a way globalizes the opportunity for people, you know, and I, I think back to the fact that like maybe the biggest fan of the Chicago Bulls in the world is some kid in Indonesia. You know, he or she might be the most devoted Chicago Bulls fan in the world, but he or she is not from Chicago. And how do you actually like reward that person? How do you make that person feel like they're part of something? And I think this maybe goes on to like a bigger question I could ask you here about the fact that my my personal opinion, and I said this yesterday, I interviewed yesterday um Mike Dudas from LinksDAO. He might remember like the DAO created this, this global golf country club. And and I, I, I told him, and I'm going to ask you something similar, 
that, in my opinion, I think one of the biggest sort of mainstream adoption use cases for NFTs comes from sports and entertainment. I see a world where no matter where you're from, if you're a fan of Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors, you'll probably find value inherently in owning a Steph Curry NFT or a Golden State Warriors NFT. Now, the exact composition of that, what that gives you might change. Maybe there's like a, a DSO for the Golden State Warriors arena, whatever that arena is called. But I just think if you think about the success of NBA Top Shot, you think about all the efforts being made to create all these new sports NFT companies, whether it's through like Candy Digital, Autograph, Recur, Socios, So Rare. I think it's like one of the biggest opportunities here. So I'd love to just get your take. Clearly you're working in this, but what's your take on how sports and entertainment from a Web3 perspective is how big of an opportunity is that for the world? So something I didn't appreciate until I came into the sports space is how huge these markets are. Like, like I'm, I'm talking in monetary value in, in terms of tens to hundreds of millions of people, there's billions who want to, you know, participate and, and already do give their attention to these things. So I think from, from that side, it's huge. And this actually goes back to something you and I were talking about. Where do you start? How do you, you know, approach an opportunity like this? And this is a really important point. And I think, again, this is the benefit of our experiences, you know, slightly older, slightly more experienced people. We see so many people in this space that are becoming already very, very, very good at what they do. So what we're doing is we're building a system that's interoperable. So when with NBA Top Shot, they're doing collectibles, they're doing it really, really well. We, we don't see, see that as we should go and build a collectible. What we're doing is we're building the platform so that they can drop their collectibles on it. Um, it, it just so happens that, you know, we, we, we like NBA Top Shot a lot. And the CEO of Dapper Labs, Roham, he, he was an advisory investor in Max Last Company. So we've got a good relationship there. So, you know, we've, we've already had some good conversations, but that's generally how we see everyone in the space. You, you look at ticketing, every ticket to everything is going to be an NFT because it, it's just obvious that's the way it's going. There's a few technological challenges that need to be sorted out, but it's super, super complex. So we don't want to compete in ticketing. That's just going to sit as part of what we do over a period of time. And that's basically, you know, you know, I think some of the stuff that socios are doing is like super interesting. In many ways, companies like that have opened a door for all of us because they've got, you know, that they've, they've been like the early pioneer in this space and so on. So I think the caveat to all of this, I think the companies I've named are already significant companies and are already impressive and all the rest of it. But if we look at NFTs as a whole, if we look at Web3 as a whole, the vast majority of things that we're looking at today, they're probably not going to survive as businesses. But that's just the nature of, of this. I think, for example, like LinksDAO, I'm not super familiar with, with everything they're doing, but I think it's incredibly interesting. I love that they've been really quick to tie real-world utility in, in, in terms of the deal they did with the uh, with the urban golf thing and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think, like, you know, DAOs, from my experience, it's going to be really tricky for true DAOs to work because all of the best DAOs have an element of centralization. And I think the idea that we're all going to contribute to this thing is really, in a decentralized way, is really great, but there still needs to be leadership. And I've seen already so many of those DAOs break down because of infighting, lack of clear vision. So I think it will end up being like 
a bit of a hybrid where the best DAOs have centralized leadership. And then the, the other th- yeah, the other thing we can't get away from, if you look at crypto's early success stories, early Web3 success stories, they're all centralized in some way or other. And, and we, we're going down that same road where, you know, we're starting off with a centralized solution, but we're building it in such a way that over time we might be able to decentralize elements of it, if, if not the whole thing. And I think that's a really important thing is, we think the smartest builders in this place, in, in this space, are building with one eye on the future and where things might go. But you need to make design decisions around that from day one because it's really hard to retrofit things like that. Yeah, no, I, I think these are good reflections on the nuances to building these things. You know, I think sometimes it can be very, very uh, overly optimistic to think about how how simple these these solutions are when they're really not always simple. Maybe I could I could ask. I'd love to ask two questions. Maybe. To, to get a bit deeper on what we just discussed. Uh, well, one, what's a particular NFT project? It could be sports, it could be non-sports, that you find particularly interesting and why? And then also maybe the second question, follow on, from a DAO perspective, is there a particular DAO? It could be, again, sports related. You know, we talked earlier, there are, there are a few DAOs that are trying to like come together to invest and buy sports teams. Uh, some have succeeded, some are still in progress. But I'd love to know, from, a, from the NFT perspective and the DAO perspective, what are some projects, and you could name more than one, but that's something that particularly fascinate you. I think the use case for gaming is really, really interesting. So I was quite early to put some money into the tokens of pretty big um, guilds that play Axie and stuff like that. So on, on the gaming side, I mean, there's there's two or three that I'll name. I, I think Rumble Kongs is super interesting, re- really happy with how that project is progressing. So they're, they're basically creating ape avatars or they've already done that bit but what they're doing is creating like a basketball game but they're already showing that they're building links with with the NBA and I almost think that they may end up meeting us somewhere where we're coming from the real world and they're coming from from the digital world so I think Rumble Kongs is really interesting I think Nifty League Degens is really interesting and the, the reason I think they're interesting is because they're almost following like the Nintendo playbook about making very, very playable games and not worrying about the flashiest graphics. And I think that that's an absolute key for all of us in this space. Like the minute you can make something useful in one way or another, it's actually addressing a real market need. That's the minute you do risk your company massively. So I'll say that those two, but gaming in general, again, we're so early on this that those two might not, you know, they might not ultimately be successful, but they're definitely looking like a couple of the stronger ones. Full disclosure, I I own several NFTs in both of those. Your question is asking me to pump my own bags a little bit because if I think that- Not financial advice, disclaimers here. If I think that project's great, then why wouldn't I have bought in it? And and actually, the answer to that is because it got too expensive versus my appetite. So, you know, at this point, I'd love to own a couple of Bored Apes or a couple of Cyber Kongs or something like that. I don't. But again, the way they're building is really interesting. NFT side, I particularly really like historical NFTs. So I... I started getting into those again about a year ago and picked up a whole bunch of them. And by historical, I mean projects that are from 2018 and earlier. And I like things that were the first of this category or first of that category or something historical. And and the reason behind that, that's me with my investor hat on. It's really, really simple. One is we can't go back in time and make that stuff. You can only have one one first customizable NFT on Ethereum, that kind of thing, for example. And then the second reason is we're so early to this that I think there's going to be several waves of people who come to this who 
every time I, I feel like the second wave has already come where there's been a discovery of a load of historical stuff and it's pushed the prices on those up. So it's almost a bit like, for me, historical art. These are historical artifacts that, you know, they're part of the story of something that's potentially quite revolutionary. So for me, it's not about what it's going to be worth in three or six months. I'm interested in what it's going to be worth in three or six years when you've got millions of people coming here. Because when, when I got involved, I think there was like 200,000 active wallets on OpenSea. Of, of course, with Coinbase NFT coming, we're, we're going to have millions. So I think from an investor's point of view, the thesis on historical is so blatantly obvious, but you've got to be patient. But the, the beauty of it is you know, the, the, those projects don't even need to do anything. Like that. That's that's pretty cool. I think ideologically, it's such an amazing concept. And I'm, I'm clearly not the only one who thinks that because what I will say about DAOs, so I've been involved in you know a, a couple now, Index Coop, best in class in terms of how it's run and all the rest of it. And I was involved at a time where it went from a a bit of a ragtag collection of people to like a super slick organization over the period of two or three months. And that, that, that was quite exciting as well. But like I say, they have got a degree of centralization. They have got clear leadership, all of those kind of things. So it's not a free for all where, and, and I, think, I think that's where this starts getting a bit confusing because I think a lot of people come to DAZ and think, you know, I've got my freedom. I, I can now contribute and whatever. And that, that's all really good until the DAO takes a decision that you, that you didn't like. And I've watched communities implode on that, that kind of thing. And then you're asking strangers who are largely anonymous. I, I just think that with DAOs, we'll end up with, you know, whether it's links or whatever else, all these groups that are trying to buy clubs. I think there'll be a happy medium behind, okay, you can have some involvement in this, but it doesn't make sense for fans to pick the team on the field, that kind of thing. Because every time someone's tried to do that, it's failed. But every time someone's tried to do that, thousands of strangers have been turned on that by that idea. And I think that's what we're trying to tap into, which is you can have the excitement of some of these things, but let's not try and be Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp because they're for that that reason. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think there's... Extreme thoughts towards one area of centralization, decentralization are very impractical. And sometimes practicality is needed for, for these things to succeed. I mean, we do have some time to talk about uh, pseudonymity, anonymity, if you'd like. like. It sounds like something you're pretty interested in. So do you have any thoughts you want to share on that before we start wrapping up? We took a decision super early on that we would be we'd use our real names and real faces because it's it's competitive advantage for us. We've got credibility. You can see who we are. It reduces the chance of a rug pull. The, the more and more this has gone on, the more and more... Because when I first came into it, I thought it was amazing. I thought I can be pseudonymous and, you know, it gives a degree of protection from my real identity. And all of those things are actually quite important because in my last company, I was quite prominent in my in my sector. And that was really good in terms of bringing business into the business. But it became really problematic when, you know, when I got targeted about a couple of things that had nothing to do with me, mistaken identity, that, that kind of thing. So I knew that I didn't want like a really, really big internet footprint personally going forward. So I went down the pseudonymous road and I thought that's really fantastic. But the way I see it is pseudonymity where you are still discoverable, that's really valuable because I've heard it been described as a digital exosuit. And the way it works is when the trolls come, 
they're too lazy to go one step further and figure out who you are, even though that information is actually quite open. So I get that. What I don't get, and I genuinely don't get it, is why people running multi-million pound businesses or protocols or whatever need to be anonymous. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. And it just, to me, it's like, okay, I think trustless is cool. I think it has its use cases. I think where somebody needs political safety or those kind of things, it's incredibly useful. But I don't understand why somebody who runs a big gaming project or somebody who runs a PFP avatar project, why those guys need to be anonymous. And, and it, it, it just, I, I just see a situation where we're going to look back on that and think, why did we put thousands of pounds of or dollars of our own money behind this stuff when we didn't even know who they were. That's just how I see it. I fully respect that opinion. One thing I'd add to that too from my side is I think there's a reason why like moral incentive structures work when they're attached to your name. There's less like moral repercussions if you if you do things without any sort of like accountability for yourself. Now I, I also get the other side of things where like maybe it's a less biased world if we're not judging someone based on their like background, physical appearance, of course. I completely get that. But I think it creates incentive structures that, not all the time, but it creates incentive structures that, disincent- that, that lower the disincentives for bad behavior if you're not being held accountable from your own sort of identity, like brand perspective. Yeah, I, th- I think it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But I just think that people who are in leadership positions, it's harder to justify why you need to be anonymous People who aren't and people who are participants, it, it's the other other way, which is what's the need to, to show who you are. So, yeah, and, and I think you make a good point about, you know, sort of bias about appearance, gender, nationality, all that kind of stuff like that. That I'm, I'm totally on board with that. But the way that plays out in the real world is going to be super interesting. But in, in this context of early projects, in this early, early thing, it almost feels like people are hiding behind something because it's accepted practice at the moment. Yeah. And also you think about the fact that the reality is no matter what, is that we will have more digital identities in like metaverse worlds moving forward. Like whether whether or not we're leading projects, there, there will be a digital side to us that may be completely aligned and the same as who we are in the physical world, maybe by completely different. Maybe we want to put on a different type of persona, et cetera. Now, to we're running out of time here, but maybe maybe this is also a sign that we should have a second podcast, maybe in a few months, maybe when when things have launched. So I'm going to put this down as ver- a verbal agreement between us for episode two at some point I'd in the next to. like year. Yeah, a few months down the road awesome. sounds good. Yeah, cool. But to unfortunately close our episode one here, I'm going to ask you the same two questions I ask every guest to, to finish up. One, where can people find more about you and your projects, like Twitter, website, whatever? And then two, what's what's the last message you'd like to leave the audience? Okay, the first one is really easy. If you go to dso.co. So DSO stands for Digital Seat Ownership. Um, so DSO.co, and you can sign up there, and then you'll get you, you basically get onto our mailing list, and you'll get to see what we're up to and all the rest of it. And there, there is still time to participate in our Genesis drop because at the time of recording, that's coming up in about a month or so. So that's that's where you can find me. You can also find me on LinkedIn and places like that. And you know what? One of the things is we are super open to talk to people at, the, at this stage. So you know, if, if anyone's got any thoughts or views, then we're, we're super happy to hear them. And then the second question, what do I want to leave people with? I think this is a more general statement. I think that Web3 is not something to sit out passively. It's the beauty of it is that everybody can participate. And it might just be with like $100 or $200. But I would urge everyone to, even before we get to that stage, 
have a proper look at it, set, set aside three or four hours and try and get under the skin of what's really going on. And I just, and the reason I say that is because I don't know anyone who's had a proper look at it who isn't excited by it, but there is that learning curve that you have to get over. I just think that there's so many opportunities for fulfillment, for op- opportunities to make money, opportunities for careers that I think those who look back on this time in 10 years' time and were vaguely aware of it and had listened to a conversation like yours and yours and mine right here and then didn't do anything about it, I think that could be a source of big regret. Amazing last words to leave with the audience. Thank you so much, Neeraj. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can l- learn more about Neeraj, his company DSO, Method90 in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.